morning. It's good to be with you today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, good to have you. You also chose a great day to, to join in with our gathering. We're starting a new series today, as Pastor Ashley said, called Ever After. And the obvious insinuation of our title is that we live in a world where we are programmed. We are told countless times over and over and over again in so many ways that if things are right and real and good and true in a, a relationship, then you will be happy. You will live happily ever after. We're taught that relationships should make us happy or they shouldn't be. They're not right. And while this is sometimes true, it's not bad to be happy and and relationships can and will and should make you happy. However, there are moments and situations and stretches. There are even seasons in our lives when things will be hard. Things will be hard relationally between us and the people we sometimes care about most. And in this series, we're going to be exploring those relationships, those most intimate relationships, whether they're marriage relationships or our closest family, or, or friendships. Our goal in this series is to kind of dive in and get a better understanding from the scriptures what God wants for us in these relationships. How do we live into these relationships in the ways he's asked us to in order to get the most out of them, in order to be changed and transformed by them through God's spirit. And so right off the bat, I want to just say this, a few disclaimers. We're going to shift back and forth in this series. Sometimes I'm going to be talking to all of you. Sometimes I'm going to be talking to the singles of you. Sometimes I'm going to be talking to the dating ones of you. Sometimes I'm going to be talking to the married ones of you. That's our goal. That's our task. And here's my ask in the middle of that. Would you please stay tuned in? Even if the current subject is focused on a group that is not you. You see, we're a community, we're a diverse community. We have a lot of different situations and the messages we preach up here are for the entire community. And here's the truth. When the community is built up, you are built up. When the body of Christ is built up, you as part of that body are built up. And so if someone in this community is growing or changing or being transformed, then it will impact you, even if it's not specifically for you. Here's the other truth. Sometimes a message may not be specifically aimed at you, but it is for you. Maybe you aren't going through something right now, but God is preparing you for something, for something down the road, for something you don't expect. Or maybe the message doesn't fit your situation specifically, but it's for someone you know, and God is offering it to you so that you can later on offer it to them. So again, my ask is no matter where you are in life, that you would be open-palmed and hearted to hear what God has to say in these messages. I also want to acknowledge that this can be a tough series because some in here will carry struggle and regret and failure and hurt and pain and anger and frustration and disappointment and even abuse into these conversations. And in this series, there may be a temptation Maybe for you to feel judged or ostracized or condemned or like the church really isn't a place where you can be because everyone else in here is doing so much better than you are doing. 
or have done in the past, and I want to say this to you, don't believe social media. It lies. People lie. They deceive. They spin on social media. You are not alone. And I just want to say, this is the place for you. If you are here today, and in fact, if you feel like a failure, then you need to hear this. This is straight from Scripture. This is Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All of us, every single person in this room carries into this series relational hurts, failures, baggage, pain. There are no perfect people here. This series is not about condemnation. Now, this series may be about challenge and conviction. I'm not saying some attitudes and actions and behaviors don't need to be straightened out in your life. In fact, I hope they are. I hope, I pray, I have been praying that God will work and change lots of things in you over these next six weeks. He's already started rearranging and reordering and reminding me of some things, even as I've prepared. But this is not a place for guilt or shame or condemnation. Some of you in here are singles for whatever reason, and I know at times you feel like an outsider or even a second-class citizen at church. For that, I'm sorry. The Bible tells us you are valuable, you are complete, you are an essential and central part of this community. And when I speak to marrieds or married people in this series, please do not believe that I don't see you or that you're not a part of this church, just know this, married people need a lot of help. They need extra attention. <laughs> Some of you in here are in the need of a lot of help category. In other words, your marriage is struggling, you're in crisis. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're, honestly, here's the truth, you're just barely hanging on. And I hope this series offers you hope. I hope this series is part of God's plan for redemption and restoration for you. But I will say this, there are no magic sermons Believe me, I wish there were. I put a lot of work into these, but, but there are no magic sermons. You will have to engage and surrender and invest yourself, and I hope and pray that you will. Finally, some in this room have been through the tremendously painful process of divorce, and so I want to be really clear. This is not a series where we will throw stones at divorced people. We are not that church. If you, if you need a church where we throw stones at divorced people, then you can probably find one, but this is not your place this is not a series where when we talk about marriage, we just want you to sit and relive all your pain or all your failures. No. In this series, I'm going to challenge you to look at your life, who you are now, who God's calling you to be now, and what he's calling you to do as you move forward. Because you can't change the past. You can only act in the present. And you can only commit and look forward to the future. Maybe in this series, God will ask you to go back and right some wrongs from your past. But even in that, this series is about who you are now and who you will be. So, enough disclaimers. That was enough, right? That was a lot of disclaimers. I spent like half my sermon prep time writing disclaimers this week um, because they're important, though. And so I want to dive in. Here's our outline for today. It's a simple outline, and yet I think you're going to find it to be significant. Three questions. What is marriage? What is the goal of marriage, and how do we achieve our goal? And I know it doesn't sound like it, but I promise you, singles, there's stuff in here for you, so stay with me. Do not check out. What is marriage? What is the goal of marriage? How do we achieve our goal? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read an entire passage, and then we're going to focus in on one verse that's going to answer these questions for us. Here we go. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. 
The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, but for man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, kind of an overarching observation here, and then we'll dive in. Here it is. We notice this right away. Marriage is God's invention. It's his idea. It's his thing. In fact, there are only two institutions in the scriptures in our world that God creates. Do you know what they are? The first institution is the institution of marriage and the family. Yeah, created, invented, thought up, and instituted by God. The second is the institution of the church. The church, marriage and the family and the church, the two institutions that God thinks up. And because God is the one who comes up with and creates marriage, it's God who tells us what what marriage is and how it works. Let me give you an example of why this is important. If you go out and buy a Ford Focus, um, if I... My son were here, he would say, Dad, why are we buying a Ford Focus? Let's make it an Audi. It's a sermon illustration. You can buy any car you want, right? But, you know, I'm trying to keep it practical for you guys, right? I'm trying to keep it real. Let's, you go out and you buy a Ford Focus. Now, it's your Ford Focus, right? I mean, you bought it. It's yours. You own it. You, you've been, it's been given to you to steward. So if you want to, I suppose you can put Hershey's syrup in the gas tank. But the people that created the Ford Focus would tell you what? It's a bad idea. It's not going to work right. It's not going to run well. It's going to break down. If you want your Ford Focus to run the way it was designed to run, then you have to look at the owner's manual. You have to follow the instructions of the creators. The same is true with marriage. Marriage is God's thing, and so we must understand it and operate it his way. And here's what God says marriage is, verse 24. I like how the New Living, Trans- Living Translation Uh, says this. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. We're going to look at three parts of this verse today. Here's the first one. Just one word. Underline it. It's the word joined. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. In the old King King James, it's the word cleave. A man cleaves to his wife. In the ESV, it's translated hold fast. This is why a man holds fast to his wife. Jesus, by the way, actually quotes this verse in Matthew 19. And uh, when he does, the word he uses, it's a Greek word, not a Hebrew word, right? It's a Greek word now. And the, the word he uses for joined or hold fast or cleave is a word that literally means to make a covenant. So he talks about marriage. He says, here's what it is. It's a covenant. 
It's a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. Friends, that is the definition of what marriage is. If you whittle it all the way back to its core, marriage is this. It's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a public commitment, a covenant between husband and wife. Sometimes we think of marriage and we describe it using the peripherals of it, things that are part of it but that don't define it. Tim Keller says it's like when we say, what's a doctor? And we say, well, a doctor is a person who wears a white coat. And you think, well... Yeah, sometimes doctors wear white coats. Doctors often wear white coats, but just because you wear a white coat, does that mean you're a doctor, right? You can wear a white coat and not be a doctor. You can be a doctor and not wear a white coat. You see, we can define marriage by saying, here's what marriage is. It's love, it's romance, it's children, it's all these things. And yet, if we really peel those things back and get down to the core, what is marriage? It's a promise, it's a public commitment, it's a covenant, and it's so important for us to remember this. Because a covenant is not about how you feel in a moment. A covenant is how you will act in the future. This is why I'm honestly starting to not like the not-so-new trend of couples writing their own vows. One thing I'm learning about myself in this series already is it's going to be an awesome place for me to vent about some things. It's like, this is going to be therapy for me and messages for you. No, I, I'm just, I've, I've never really fully liked it, and, and I'm starting to like it less and less and less as I get older and farther into marriage. Because most of the time, even though they're fun and touching, when a couple writes their own vows, they tend to write stuff that doesn't matter that much. They, they write about how they feel or about how they met or about the affection they have towards one another. You know, they say things like, I remember the time you spilled that cup of coffee all over me on our first date and instantly I knew you were the one for me and I promise to always be overjoyed at being your spouse even when you spill stuff in the future. And everyone in the crowd is like, ah. And, and, and right about that moment is when my wife turns to me in the audience, if I'm not doing the wedding up front, and she says, that's a lie. <laughs> and it's not because she's cynical about marriage. It's because she understands marriage. She understands that you're not going to keep that promise. That's not a real promise. That's not a real thing. You cannot promise to feel a certain way forever. Because feelings change and ebb and flow and shift over time. You see, a covenant is a vow. So we take vows, right? Declarations, not about how you feel or even how you'll promise to feel forever. It's about your promise to act in a certain way. It's about your promise to be a certain person in the relationship. You see, it's a choice. It's not a feeling. Marriage is not about the past. It's about the present and the future, who you are and will be no matter what. Now, a covenant does this, but a covenant is not like a contract. Here's another mistake we make in understanding marriage. A contract says, hey, I'll do this if you'll do that. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Or more importantly, if you don't do this for me, then I won't do this for you. And so many of us enter into marriage and we treat it as a contract. But a marriage is a covenant and a covenant says this, I'll do this, this for you even when you 
won't do this for me, even when you don't do this for me, even when you can't do this for me. You see, a contract is about protecting personal interests. I drop a contract because I want to protect myself. I want to protect myself from you. I'm pretty sure and I'm quite certain that you won't live up to your end of the bargain. And so I want to put some things in place that protect me when you don't. But a covenant, a covenant is not about protecting personal interests. It's about laying down personal interests. It's about saying my personal interests aren't what's primary anymore. A contract says... I need to protect me. A covenant says, me no longer matters as much as we. You see, a covenant takes me and flips it over into we. Now, notice I did not say you. Because sometimes we can get dysfunctional in marriage, right? Sometimes people get abusive in marriage and they say, It's not about me, it's about you. And that's not true either. It's we turning in, or me turning into we. Friends, hear this from me. If you are married, and I know you probably know this, but it's a good reminder. It was a good reminder for me this week. If you are married, you are not primarily a me anymore. Self-interest really isn't a thing. We interest is the thing. You are a we, and all of your decisions, all of them, whether you're together or not, whether it's your job and she's at a different job or at home, all of your decisions impact him, impact her. Every single decision of your life must now be viewed not through the best for me lens, but the best for we lens. If you are here and you're thinking about getting married, you're considering it, but there's a big holdup, and the holdup is this. I'm not sure I'm really ready to give up me. Then you're not ready for marriage. Then you're not ready for marriage because that's what marriage is. Marriage is, says, I take me and I lay it down in order to pick up and exalt we. And sometimes we is what's good for me. Sometimes what's good for us is what's good for me. It doesn't mean I can never go play disc golf. I love to play disc golf, not in the rain. I love to go snowboarding. Maybe that's a better example right now. I love to go snowboarding. And sometimes what's best for we, Amy and I, is when I get to go snowboarding and have a day of relaxation, I come home refreshed and recharged and renewed so that I can be the best me in our relationship that I can be. You see, it doesn't exclude what's best for me. It's just not all about what's best for me. Sometimes it's about what's good for me. Sometimes it's about what's good for her. But it's always about what's best for us. Friends, hear me on this. Because if you're single here or if you're married, this this matters. Marriage is a really big deal. Some of you forgot that. Some of us like forget life happens and things go on and other things come up and we forget this very central truth. Marriage is a really big deal. It's a covenant and it's a really big deal. You see, in the Old Testament, when a covenant was formed between two parties, they would cut an animal in half. 
And as a way of ratifying the covenant, they would walk between the two halves of this animal. Mostly it would, most of the time it would be a bull. And they would walk between those two halves of that animal as a way of saying this. If I break this covenant, then may it be for me like it is for this bull. May I be cut in two. May my, may my life be split in half. May my very existence cease to exist. You see, a covenant, to form a covenant, it was a matter of life and death. Now, again, there will be moments in this series when the message for singles and marrieds will be the same message. This is not one of those moments. This is not one of those moments. Same principle, different application if you're single or if you're married. Here's the principle again. Marriage is a giant commitment and a huge responsibility. Application. If you are single, if you are single, the Bible says, good news, you're afforded some freedom that married people aren't. You aren't in this life and death relationship. You're not in this covenant. In fact, Paul says, when it comes to pursuing your calling and using your gifts in this world, you have an advantage over married people because you only need to consider what God is asking of you. You don't have to be a we. You get to be a me. So let me just say this to you. Instead of lamenting on what you don't have, lean into and celebrate what you do have. At least for now, at least in this season, God has given you a gift. God has given you some advantage, a state of being that's far less anxious than being married. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's right out of the Bible. There is freedom. There's an advantage to being single. You do not have to wait to start your life until somebody comes along to marry Your life does not begin once you're married. Your entire life is not about finding that one person who will complete you. A, that's a lie. They won't complete you. You're already complete. We'll talk about that in a minute. B, your life can start now. Your life in Christ has already begun. God has great and wonderful plans for you, and he wants to use you specifically as a single. It's a big deal. And guess what? You're free of that big deal. It's one less thing for you to have to worry about. One enormously less thing for you to worry about. Here's another application if you're not married. But if you're looking to be, the question is not, if you're looking to be married, the question is not, is this person cute, funny, smart? Do they make my heart go a flutter? The question is, is this a person I should make a permanent lifetime covenant with? You see, those are different questions. They will result in different answers, different decisions. See, here's the question again. Is this a person I should make a permanent lifetime covenant with? Marriage isn't something to enter into lightly because when the dating phase is over and the struggles of real life come... The question is, this, is this the kind of person I want to do we with in this world for the rest of our lives? You see, married people can't ask this question anymore. This question is not available to them. But if you're single, you can still ask it. If you're dating, you can still. You know, one pastor I listened to this week said it this way. A friend of mine sent me a message. 
This is directly to you single people who are possibly dating. If Timmy has an attitude with his mom, if Timmy doesn't have a good work ethic, if Timmy doesn't have a relationship with God, here's your move. Scroll, select, delete. This is not a covenant. This is not a covenant yet. You are not bound. You are not required. You can still make a good choice. Why? Because marriage is a big deal. Friends, this is why married people so often have so much advice for single people when they're in the dating phase. And again, I am so sorry, single people. But here's why we have this much advice. Because we've walked this road and we know this. Half of your success in marriage comes in the selection process. I'll say it this way. Don't cleave carelessly. Give it some thought. It's a big deal. Now, if you're married, the application changes. If you're married, the application of this principle, what is marriage? It's a covenant. It's a lifetime promise and commitment because you've already promised. You've already picked. You're already cleaved. You're already in a covenant. And here's how that covenant goes. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, till death do us part. If you're married today, you might just look at your spouse at some point and say, you're stuck with me. Or we're in this for the long haul. Or lucky you. you know? <laughs> now, again, the point here is, of course, that marriage is permanent. It holds on when times get tough, when they get really tough even. And yet I do want to point this out. Jesus, covenants are not without, covenants in the scriptures are not without some off-ramps. Jesus actually says because of sin, because people will sometimes radically depart from their covenant, there are conditions in which divorce is sometimes the only option. Specifically, if there is extreme abuse, if there is abandonment, or if there is adultery. And it may be as if the person you are married to is dead. You see, in the Old Testament, if you broke your marriage covenant, the idea was you would get the death sentence, right? That's why you walked through the bull. And then, and then if you broke your covenant, you'd get stoned, and then your spouse would be free. <laughs> now, we don't stone people anymore, but... The idea still holds true if someone radically and extremely departs from the covenant, then it is as if they have died to the relationship. And Jesus says, you are permitted, you are permitted to be free. I'll also say this, that from God's perspective, divorce is never the preferred option. He says, where there's softening of hearts and where there can be repentance and forgiveness. This is always the best option, even when a covenant has been broken. Even when a covenant has been broken in the Lord by grace and by forgiveness and by the power of God at work in your life, there can still be restoration and forgiveness. But it is permitted at times. So what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. It's a really big deal. Next question. Why marriage? Why did God create it? What is the goal? This is my favorite questions, by the way. Let's go back to our passage. And if you remember, as I read, Adam is in the garden, and God says what to Adam? He says, it's not good for you to be alone. You're in this garden. There's weeds and trees and plants and shrubs, and 
you're starting to talk to them, and it's making me a little, like, weirded out, right? It's not good for you to be alone, Adam. You're starting to lose your mind. So God brings all these animals to Adam, and he's naming them, and he's hanging out with elephants and giraffes and pandas and birds, but there is not a suitable helper. And the word helper here is the word azir, and it's a word about partnership. It's a word about companionship. It's often used to describe the relationship we have with God. He is our azir. He is our helper, and again, the idea is this. God looks around, and even with the animals, he says, gorillas and goats are great, but Adam, you are not finding the kind of relational intimacy with these animals that your soul needs. And so what does God do? He, takes, he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes out a rib. And the message here is that, again, Adam is not incomplete in this moment. What he needs is already in him, Catch that? God doesn't like put Adam aside and go make something new. What Adam needs is already in him. That's because Adam is complete. Singles, again, I'll say it, you are not incomplete. You are not living half a life. You are not half a person. You do not need to get married in order to be whole and married people. Let's stop treating single people this way. God says everything Adam needs is in him, and so he takes his side. Why? God takes the woman from Adam's side because he's making someone like him, someone equal with him, someone who can stand side by side with him. And Adam wakes up and says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And the idea is this is now someone I can connect with. The plants, not even close. The animals, not quite. But this is now someone I can do. This is now someone I can have a relationship with and do life with. I was alone. My soul was lonely. But now I can connect deeply with someone else. Verse 24. Why? This is, read verse 24. This explains why. This explains why. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and enters into a covenant with his wife. Why? So the two can be united into one. If what marriage is, is a cleaving, a covenant, a promise, then the purpose of it, the purpose of that cleaving, the purpose of that promise, the point of it, the why, the goal, is oneness. To pursue oneness together. To not be alone, but to be together. To pursue oneness so that you could have one flesh. One flesh is not just about sex. One flesh is about one personhood. You see, most people who are getting married, this is, this is a big struggle. I think this is, this is really important. Most people who are getting married don't even know why they're getting married. They don't. I'm not sure I did when I got married either. So, you know, there's no high horse here. But I've been to seminary and now I've thought about it. So I'm going to tell you. I seriously, though, I do. I literally, on the very first gathering, every time I do premarital counseling, the couple comes in, young or old, you know, whatever, and I sit down with them and I say, all right, why are you getting married? I mean, what's the goal of doing this? What's the goal of this marriage? And they always kind of look at me like, we should know this answer, and yet we have no idea. And so they'll say something like, to love each other and be happy together, right? Or, you know, something. And, and, and it's nice and it's a good try, but that is not the answer. Friends, this is like starting a basketball game and not even knowing that the goal is to make the ball into the hoop and to prevent the other team from it. You, I mean, how, 
What are your chances of success when you don't even know the goal? The goal, friends, is oneness. Tim Keller says it this way. The goal of your marriage is deep, intimate friendship. Some of you need to write that down. You've got your message for the day. You've got everything you need. Deep, intimate friendship. That's his definition of oneness. You see, the goal of marriage is not endurance, not just stay together, not just avoid divorce. Some of you here who are the most critical of divorced people are those of you who are in a marriage where you're miserable and disconnected and not engaged together in deep friendship, but you are sticking it out. And there is this, this sense, this deep attitude in you, this pride that says, since we have to be miserable and not get divorced, then you should have to be miserable and not get divorced too. Sure, there are times when you must just stay committed in your marriage through tough stuff. But the long-term goal, the why of marriage is always oneness, always deep, intimate friendship with another. Let me ask you this, married people. If that were true, if that were true, and indulge me, indulge the scriptures, <laughs> If the goal of your marriage was, if the point of it, with the purpose, if God's vision for it was really oneness, deep, intimate, connected friendship, what would you do differently? What would you start doing that you're not doing now? If the goal was really to pursue this deep, intimate friendship and connectedness and oneness with your spouse, if that were really the goal, what would you start doing that you're not doing now? What would you stop doing? What are you doing right now in your marriage to build togetherness, oneness, deep, intimate connection with your spouse? Because that's the why of marriage. That's why you got married. That's why God gave you that person. Now, singles, in case you think I forgot about you again, I haven't. This goal matters to you as well. It should change how you think about and go about dating. If, if this is really the goal of marriage, then the way we approach marriage, the way we kind of enter into the spousal selection process will even be upended. See, most people approach dating and they think to themselves, I'm looking for someone who is primarily and first and foremost physically attractive. Someone who's cute, someone who's hot, someone who's sexy, someone who turns me on, someone who when I walk into the room and I think she's pretty or he's handsome, Right? And then, you know, after we get to know that attractive person, we hope and pray that there will be substance and character and good personality. Friends, if the goal of marriage is deep, intimate friendship, then dating should start with and primarily be about the search for someone who can be a great friend. I know we'll have more high school students here at the second service, and I am going to hone in on them. You better believe it. My daughter will be out there. Um, I won't say that second service. Um, when Amy and I started dating, we were in high school. We first started dating when we were sophomores in high school. You can all say, ah. No, it wasn't really like that. But um, here's the two main reasons we first started dating. I thought she was cute. She knew I was a starter on the basketball team. 
That's the found, that was the foundational moment of this godly marriage that I represent up here today. That's how our dating life started. That was the foundation, right? But then, here's, here's, where I, here's where I'm so thankful to the Lord, because I can't say this happened by any intentionality by me, but God ordained it this way. We broke up, and over time, after we got through all the weirdness and awkwardness of having dated, we became really good friends, and then better friends. And then I found myself feeling like I could talk to her and share things with her that I couldn't share with other people. And then I started to notice some qualities about her that were appealing, authenticity and sense of humor and honesty and humility. And then she gave her life to Jesus. And as we got older, I found myself in a place where I was thinking, I'd like to find a spouse. And all of a sudden, she was just rising to the top. And, and was she still cute? Yes, she was still cute. If you're out there and you're cute, just say amen. Say, it's not a sin to be cute. It's okay to be cute. I see a lot, a lot of you out there are cute. Um, I won't name names right now. But no, it's okay to be cute, but it just can't be the main thing. It can be one of the things. And it's okay to be physically attracted to your spouse. But here's what I'm saying. Physical attraction should grow out of friendship. It should grow out of friendship. It should not be our first disqualifying factor. You may get to know someone and you might find them marginally attractive, but after you get to know them, they become really attractive to you. They just start to, to leap out of a room at you. You see, attraction follows friendship. Here's the point, friends. When you are emotionally attracted and spiritually attracted and relationally attracted, the physical attraction will often Follow. So don't make physical attraction singles your primary criteria for dating. It is not the most important thing in marriage, and so it should not be the most important thing in dating. Don't fall into the lies and traps of this world that say attraction and romance and the way he looks or she looks is the most important thing. It is not. And all the married people said, last question. We have what is marriage? It's a covenant. What is the goal of marriage? Oneness, deep, intimate friendship. And then how do we achieve our goal? This is our last question. How do we achieve our goal? And this morning I'll just give you one main way. There's lots of ways to answer this question, but I'm going to give you one main way from our verse, Genesis 2. It says, in order to enter a covenant and pursue oneness, a man leaves his father and mother. He leaves his father and mother to enter into a covenant and then to pursue oneness with his spouse. Underline that word, leaves. Important word. Who does he leave in this narrative? At least in theory, because Adam didn't really have a mom and dad. So this is sort of theoretical talk, right? I mean, at least not that we know of. Mom and dad weren't present because Adam was created by God. But the idea is that he's saying, in the future... Here's how it's going to work. A man will leave his parents, his father and mother. And this doesn't mean he will never see them again. This is a passage about priority. This is a passage about who and what is the highest priority in your life. This is a passage about who now should get more of your emotional and creative energy than anyone or anything else in the world. Because in the ancient world, friends, a person's parents were far and away the most profound and primary relationship in their life. Mom and dad were A number one over everything. Over friends, over people at school, over your job, over your career. 
above everything else in the world, your parents were your highest priority, priority your primary allegiance, your, your priority in life was to them above all else. And what the scriptures tell us here is that when you enter into the covenant of marriage, nothing in this world can be a higher priority for you than this relationship. Nothing else in this world should be a higher priority for you than the marriage relationship. And, and maybe for you, the thing that's going to challenge that, that's going to challenge that marriage relationship for priority in your life, maybe that thing is your parents. Maybe early in your marriage, you need to get some emotional distance and create some boundaries so that your loyalty and allegiance can be to your spouse, not your mom. Not their thoughts, not their opinions, not their ideals, not their traditions and practices and dynamics. Yours. Yours. That's a message for both parents and kids, by the way. Some of you parents need to give your newly married kids some space. That's biblical advice. It doesn't mean disengage. It doesn't mean don't help. It doesn't mean don't insert good, solid advice when needed. It just means be careful because their job is to leave you. You are no longer the priority. You are no longer the most important or most influential voice in their lives. Those days are over. Your job is done. Maybe it's not your parents. Maybe for you, though, there's a priority tension between an old relationship. Maybe a relationship that's threatening the priority of your marriage. Maybe what you need to leave is behind some other people that you were connected to in the past, specifically people you dated, because they are creating tension in the priority order of your current marriage. Practical tip. Cut ties with old boyfriends and girlfriends. To this, I just want to say, duh. And yet, it's not always what happens. Here's the second part of that. Get off Facebook. You don't follow her anymore. You just don't. It's just not a thing. You don't chat or text or meet up for coffee like you used to. I know, you've become just friends. Not anymore. You're married. It's not how it works. You have left that relationship. If your spouse is uncomfortable with a relationship, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. I mean, you can talk about it. You can process it. You can ask why they're uncomfortable. You can get to the bottom of it. But in the end, if your spouse says, I don't even have a good reason. There's just this thing in me. I just feel weird. I just feel uncomfortable. You say, that's all I need to know. Why? Because this relationship is my highest priority. Hey, you know what? I'll get a little more personal. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids are the thing that's a higher priority in your life than your marriage. Maybe the children, not, 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 about like a, I'm not talking about like a mixed family. That can happen certainly. But I'm talking even about your own biological together children even. This might be the number one issue for a lot of married couples. Your kids are a higher priority for you than your spouse. The scriptures say you got to leave and you got to cleave. You got to be real clear about what 
and who is number one in your life. Friends, if you are in a covenant, the goal is the highest level of deep, connected, intimate oneness you can find. You should be investing more time and money and energy and creativity and emotion in your spouse than in anyone or anything else in this world. They are your priority. Now, this doesn't mean that if on a Sunday morning we wake up and Amy says, you know, I really want you to just stay home today. I say, well, hon, you're a higher priority to me than my job, and so I guess I'll call Pastor Ashley, and she'll whip up a sermon in the next 30 minutes. No, it doesn't mean in every moment you're the highest priority. Sometimes kids have to be a higher priority. Sometimes your job has to be a higher priority. But in the overall span of your life, when you step back from your daily and weekly and monthly routines, is your spouse your highest Priority. Do they know that they are first on your importance list? Here's a good question if you're married this week. If you're brave, and, and, and if your marriage is in a place to handle this question, just ask your spouse this. What could I do that would let you know that you are the top priority for me? What could I do that would let you know that you are the top priority for me? You see, because sometimes in the doing comes the reordering. <laughs> sometimes the reality for me is church. This sermon is a higher priority. It consumes my life. And sometimes when I say, honey, what can I do to let you know that you are the top priority for me? And then she tells me and I go, ugh, I didn't really want to do that. And then I do it. It actually reorders my heart. And it reorders my life, and it reorders my priorities, and it gets me back on track. You see, in serving her, I'm serving myself. I'm serving us, we before me. It's important. Singles, I haven't forgotten about you. And I just want to say one last thing to you before I close it down, and we go into communion today. But this might be simple, but I believe it's important. I believe it's important. I think the message here for married people is there is a person and they are the highest relational priority in your life. But if you are single, you need to have relationships that are the highest priority in your life. Just because you aren't married doesn't mean that deep, intimate, connected relationships aren't vastly important for your soul. And so do not neglect these. In fact, I would challenge you in this way if you're single to get real specific about the friend or the friendships that you say are highest priority in your life and then start thinking through real intentionally how they stay in that place. Because it's easier for you to kind of go, oh, it's just a friend. Oh, it's just my brother. Oh, it's just this person. And yet, Having relationships at the top of your priority list, the scriptures say, are so good for your spiritual health and transformation. And so it's not a covenant, it's not a marriage relationship, but it can still be deep and intimate and personal and a high, high priority. And friends, I'll tell you this, next week, you're thinking to yourself, maybe, this all sounds great, Dave. This whole oneness thing, when you talk about it, like, in theory, it sounds amazing. But you know what? I have to be one with him. Right? Maybe he's here today. Maybe he's not. Don't look at him right now. That would be awkward for everyone in your row. <laughs> if you only knew how hard I've tried. 
If you could only, um, you, if you can't, I'm, I'm sure Amy has her things, but you can't even imagine Pastor Dave, right? And, and I know some of you have some stories, and they're real. I'm not discounting your stories. But I am saying this. There's a power. You are not left to do this on your own. There is a power that God offers you to be the kind of spouse he's asking you to be, to be the kind of friend he's asking you to be, to have the kind of relationships and friendships and marriages he's asking you to have. And the power is himself. The power is the gospel. And next week, for part two of this series, Pastor Paul and Pastor Bethany are going to preach together. I asked them to do it on conflict and to have a big fight up here for us. They said no to that. But they are going to talk about the power of the gospel in a marriage. And I'll just tell you, friends, um, as some of Paul and Bethany's closest friends, there's not a better marriage to learn from than theirs. And so uh, Paul is our executive pastor. Bethany is our pastor to women here. And so together, um, I know they're stressed, and so I'm setting them up for failure right now. They're like, you promised our message was going to, it's going to be phenomenal. And if it's not, you should throw stuff. No, um, it's going to be but it's, it's really is this. How do I do this? How do I, how do I pursue these things? How do I really live into these things that God wants for me in my life? And so I'm going to invite you to come next week. But for this week, we're going to close this way, like we do every week at the table. Because this table says this. If you need grace for the places where you haven't lived up to this message where you haven't lived up in life, if, if you need to know that you're still loved and accepted and adored and treasured by your heavenly Father, even though you haven't been the spouse you're supposed to be, even though you haven't been the friend that you're supposed to be, even though you haven't been the human you're supposed to be, Jesus says, if you need a reminder of God's love in spite of all that, you come to this table and you remember that I gave my body for you, that I shed my blood for you, that I gave my life for you, because even while you were yet a sinner, I died for you. That's how much I love you. And here's the other thing that happens at this table. It's not, just, it's not just grace for forgiveness. It's grace for empowerment. It's that grace that will empower you to be the person God wants you to be. This table is the fuel, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But today, here's the invitation. Sit and just ask this question this morning. Holy Spirit, what are you, what are you saying to me today? What are you asking of me today? What do you want me to walk out of here with? And then you come and you bring it to this table and you remember God's love and grace. His love and grace for you, not dependent on who you are or what you've done, dependent on who he is and what he's done. He has made you his priority, even when you haven't been, he hasn't been yours. So let me pray and then the tables will be open. You can take the elements back to your seat and receive them on your own when you're ready. Father, I do pray t today for specifically people in this space right now who are carrying a heavier than normal burden in their life, Lord. Maybe it's a circumstance that's overwhelming them. Maybe it's a relationship that's really in a difficult place. Maybe there's uncertainty. Maybe there's shame, regret, failure, Lord, I don't know, but, but you know, and I just pray that you'd speak into those places, Lord, that you'd remind them that you see them, that you would offer hope and healing, comfort and security, not security in the fact that you will make everything all better, but security in the fact that you are working in and amidst every situation in our lives. And so with that, Lord, we come to the table to declare again 
you as Lord, to say that we need and receive your death and resurrection for us in our lives, to forgive us and also to feel us. So, God, be Lord and King of the people and the relationships in this room. That's our prayer. And we pray it in